Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about The Elder Scrolls III Morrowind. Uh, Developed by Bethesda Game Studios, it was released for Windows and the original Xbox in 2002. This is probably one of my favorite games of all time, and since we're now closer to the 20th anniversary than the 15th, uh, we're putting this out because I love this game, uh, and maybe we can hold you over until the 20th anniversary love fest begins. (laughs) Which won't be that long from now, huh? Yeah, we're old, but hey, that's what we do now. We be old, we play old games. Um, but yeah, I guess, what, what's some of your guys' history with this game? When did you first come to it? Uh, what did you think of it? Uh, tell me. Yeah, I started playing this in uh, college, actually. So back in the day, the only computer games I could ever get my hands on are whatever my friends had and could burn me copies of because I was broke. So uh, <laughs> in college, uh, one of my roommates, Aaron, got me hooked on uh, on Morrowind. And I think we've talked about this before. He's the He's the min-max guy that would... Uh, put a, you know, he, he, he put a book on his mouse when he left for class so that when he got back, some rat would have his block up to a hundred. <laughs> hey, he may have been min-maxing that skill, but he was not min-maxing his leveling as we'll talk about later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I originally played this, uh, courtesy of uh, my cousin, Mike. He introduced me to this game, uh, when I was quite young, I think I was still in grade school and, um, it just like blew my mind this was like a completely different from any rpg that i've ever seen or played and i absolutely stretched the uh the limits of the uh admittedly really shitty uh pc we had in our house at the time to even make this thing run but it was Mm -hmm. worth it (laughs) i first played this game when i was in college because uh due to Brian here, who lent me his old Morrowind CDs because he's like, ah, I've got these burned. I don't need these anymore. I have no memory of that, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, as, as things go by, you there was a time period in the last few years where they made this game and all of its expansions free to download uh, for some anniversary or celebration for Bethesda or something. So lots of people have played this game over the years. Um, you know, certain aspects of it have held up, uh, you know, or even been exemplars. Some have aged rather poorly, but maybe we can talk a little bit about Bethesda first. I mean, this is an old game company and now is one of the sort of standard bearers of the industry. Started in 1986 and now they're sort of world beaters with, uh, you know, the owners of the Elder Scrolls, recently Skyrim, and uh, also the Fallout series. You know, it's a big company now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Recently purchased by Microsoft as well. Oh, wow. I like of all the crazy shit that happened last year, that one didn't even like register, but that is a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, when this game came out too, Bethesda was kind of on the ropes. Um, a lot of the programmers, the people working on the game, thought this was, it was going to be this or nothing because the two games that came out for this, Battlespire and Redguard, uh, two of the Elder Scrolls games were very, um, they were successful, but not enough so to keep them going so there was a lot of a lot pinned on this game and man did it deliver yeah this was the first so this is technically elder scrolls 3 but in my mind and i think in the way most people see the series this is pretty much the first one this is the first i believe it's the first open world first 3d game in the series correct right well it's like grand theft auto i mean there's a one and two but then three was such a game changer compared to the ones that came before 
That's a good analogy. And, and this was sort of like their entry onto the mainstream, like you said, Clint. Um, the other games, and you know, PC gaming over has increased over the years too, but it's worth noting as well that this was also a console debut for them. The first mm-hmm. game they ever put out on a console. Uh, so they captured an entirely new market rather than just the uh, PC gamer crowd, which I think did a lot to sort of catapult them more into the mainstream. Did either of you play it on console? No. I thought Oblivion was their first foray into the console series, but uh, not only was Morrowind released on the Xbox, it sold better on the Xbox than it did on the PC. Well, that's because, well, did you not just listen to everything we just said? I got it because it was a burned copy from a friend. You got it from a burned <laughs> copy of a friend. So That's a I've, good point. <laughs> we've all since bought it, so Bethesda got their money, but yeah. Everybody yeah. here pirated it at one point. Sorry, guys. Don't worry. I bought it three times over. Don't sue me, please, Bethesda. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have eight copies of Skyrim, too, so I can play it on my on my phone, my refrigerator, and my car. That's right. <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you want to start your morning cup of coffee going, and you just want to do a little Skyrim on the coffee machine in the meantime. Fusrado. <laughs> Nothing wakes you up in the morning like a trip down the mountainside with... Uh, your fellow Stormcloaks bound and gagged. Uh, to that end, Morrowind actually opens relatively similarly. You are a prisoner. You're, you know, on a boat going to the Isle of Vardenfell in the province of Morrowind. Um, so it is, you know, another one of those uh, Elder Scrolls games where you start off a prisoner and eventually turn yourself into a world-beating, god-killing nightmare of a person. You're always a prisoner in these games. You, uh, All three of Oblivion, Morrowind, and Skyrim, you start off as a prisoner. I was just about to mention that. I, I, think, I think even the other two, I believe, no matter what that's how every elder scrolls game always opens hmm. hey they got traditions yeah it's a it's definitely a trope of theirs and i kind of like it because it, it shows you from being um you know the bottom of society uh going up to like i said being just uh sort of the the main character the protagonist uh of the game if you will but it's also interesting because some people will argue that the background of being a criminal or, you know, imprisoned is limiting in terms of what your character's backstory could be. But, uh, you know, we all know that good people can go to prison or get caught up in the wrong things. And, you know, really, it could be anyone on that boat or in that cell or whatever for any number of reasons. So this is less limiting than people want to make it. It's a good starting point too. like if you are in something this this open, it's hard to find a good starting point, And that always seems to be like a a good fresh start. You break out of prison every single time you break out of prison and you go off from there. Yeah, it's true. It gives a good reason for you to have no money in your bank, no inventory of items, no like real past, um, especially if you're being transported to a new land as a result of your imprisonment. It's a nice way to create like a blank slate uh, diegetically. (laughs) (laughs) Forgot the bingo cards. Amen, brother. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, Wikipedia will tell you that this game is about, you know, uh, confronting the deity Dagathur and, uh, you know, climbing the Red Mountain volcano in the center of Morrowind and breaking the land free from imperial, you know, reign. But honestly, I think it's about everything but that uh, in, in the grand scheme of things. 
this is a game whose setting and world is really the story. You know, the setting is the story in such a huge way in this game. It rewards scrutiny, and it is very immersive. I think if there's one thing I'm going to continue to hit on this entire time is that this game's world informs its game, not the other way around, and it is just so well fleshed out. Yeah, you're always a big fan of environmental storytelling, and I hear you talk about it all the time. We talk about uh, things like Souls-likes, but going back and replaying this game, I didn't realize like how much of the story you get from the environment. Just for an example, like when you go talk to uh, Caius, I guess. Caius Cosades, yeah. Yeah, yeah like, okay... Normally you think, okay, this guy's got his stuff together. He seems to be, you know, an important person. But if you look around his room, you find, like, if you look under the bed, you'll see a spoon and some drugs. And you're like, oh, God, this dude's like a heroin addict. Like, <laughs> can, I, can I even trust this person? Like, and, and this was one of the first games where, that I can think of off the top of my head, where they went into that amount of detail with the world where they didn't just spoon feed you information, but they made you look around and gather information that way. Fun little side here is that the designers made that man shirtless because they knew that would freak people out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of works. Like, Caius Casades is such a, like, classic. He, he reminds me of, like, the CIA trope of the guy who's been in South America too long undercover, and he's just, like, started sampling the wares. <laughs> um, I think it, it, like, works so well. And clearly he's got, like, uh, he's a sharp dude. He, he knows what's going on. He knows more than you do. But um, he serves as such an interesting sort of uh, intro, as you are a stranger in a strange land, he is a stranger in a strange land who's been there much, much longer, and has started to take on uh, some of the land's characteristics. Yeah, which generally are not good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe it's worth mentioning, like, Morrowind is the home of uh, the Dark Elves, and Vardenfell, the island you're on, is in the center of that, that continent or that part of the continent. So the, the Dunmer are mired in tradition, xenophobia, and resentment towards the empire from which Caius uh, hails. And so there's some really interesting stuff going on here, like politically, religiously, culturally, economically. There's just so many aspects like weaving in and out of each other in this game, and they come up in every single part of the game. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's 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 not like lighthearted, like not that Oblivion or Skyrim were necessarily lighthearted, but it was a lot prettier uh, landscape. It was a little less brutal, but like this game, like Morrowind sucks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is a shitty place to be, and they don't pull any punches about it either. So you mentioned it earlier. So we talked about heavy drug abuse. There's obviously the problem with xenophobia. Like racism is a huge issue in this game. Like this is. This game, for its time, hit a lot of these heavy topics that not a lot of games did back then. That's normal now, but that wasn't normal back then. Yeah, you rarely get to see, like, the victims of colonial imperialism uh, as, like, the main location that you're um, exploring in a game. And it's super interesting because they explore so many different aspects, as I mentioned, uh, aside from just the politics and the the on-its-face effects of that, maybe militarily, is, is somewhere you'd traditionally see that. They explore, you know, all aspects of culture around that, the religions, etc. It's it's pretty fascinating, and I, you know, you don't see that uh, even now. Yeah, and I think the other big thing is that it wasn't so, like, especially with video games, and especially back then, everything is black and white, good or bad. In Morrowind, it was very gray area, like, 
again, we it has some heavy topics, but on the other hand, there's no like inherently good or inherently evil people. Even you yourself, like you're supposed to be the savior, but are you really? It, it, it kind of leaves it up to interpretation. Like the whole thing is is kind of a giant gray area that makes you, the player, challenge what you're seeing and, and what you're thinking about the game. Yeah, I do love that they leave so many things up for interpretation and they provide historical documents throughout the game that give two different sides or three different sides of any given event. Um, you know, one of the things, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about lore later, but one of the like things that Michael Kirkbride, the, the writer that uh, is responsible for so much of this lore invented was the idea of the dragon break, which is basically like a uh, an event that happened before the events of Morrowind that allowed for like all different, all of the eight different outcomes of the previous game to have happened simultaneously. Uh, yeah, so Daggerfell came out and had eight different endings you could choose as a player. So the way that these guys came up to kind of make, uh, to deal with this issue was to make all of them canon. And then like the dragon break happens, time gets warped around, and then now we have a nice history to go on. But he made it part of the game lore instead of just alighting over it like a lot of other games would have. Yeah, and, and, you know, the results of that is just, like, a massive upheaval in every direction, and it allowed them to, like, make all of the stuff that's happening in Morrowind, um, you know, basically, uh, it, it's sort of the, the event that sets in motion all the things that'll happen in Morrowind, that'll happen in Oblivion, that, you know, eventually happen in Skyrim, too, and it's just such a, a masterstroke, um, but to, to go back and, and focus in on, on Morrowind, I think we should talk a bit more about the actual island of Ardenfell that you're spending so much time on here. You know, I already mentioned the uh, the volcano in the center of the island, but that just is sort of the shadow that's being cast over the entire game. There's an entire society that's sort of living around the uh, edges of that, that volcanic island. Cities, towns, people. Religions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, there's, it's a very wide world. You see a lot of different cultures. You see the different um, political implications of this faction controls this area, this faction controls that area. Of course, you'll get to do quests with all of them as you um, as you so choose to do. But definitely a very wide open area, lots to explore. Yeah, I, I especially love the cities. Like the cities in this game, Vivek being the largest one, named after the uh, living god Vivek, is awesome. Um, but you probably have the most familiarity with Belmora, which is sort of your Green Hill <laughs> zone of this game. Mm-hmm. Starting town, so to speak. Well, not the one you start off fresh off the boat from, but that's the hub for a lot of your opening quests. It's where you like first learn about the Dwemer ruins that are right nearby. It's where uh, your spymaster friend sends you off on different quests and kind of coordinates everything. So you're always coming back to Belmora. I think the most iconic city in the game. Maybe if not the most iconic, the most, the one that people remember the best. You can make an argument that like Aldrune, where most people live in a giant crab carcass, is pretty iconic. Or uh, Vivek is iconic because it has a giant meteor hovering over it and it's made up of several, you know, god-constructed uh, floating cantons on the water. Okay, so maybe not the most like stylistic one, but yeah, the one that most people remember. Yeah, I was going to say, and, and of course, uh, surrounding that volcanic center of the island is the ghost wall, which again, you know, just the, 
influences of the gods at every corner is basically a wall created by Vivek to contain the power of Dagathur, basically keeping all of the demons and monsters that exist there in check. Um, aside from, you know, the man-made things or God-made things in this game, there's plenty of dungeons, like you said, Josh, the Dwemer ruins, ancestor tombs housing undead, and Deadric ruins, which house, you know, the, the demons and, um, you know, evil god creations uh, of those Deadric gods. One of the things I noticed playing through this game again was that uh, the Elder Scrolls definitely takes a look at the old dead civilizations a lot. You had the Dwemer ruins in here, you had the Elven ruins in Oblivion, and back to the Dwemer ruins again in Skyrim. Um, but it's definitely something they come back to again and again. Yeah, you're right. I, I thought I didn't think about that, but the Aeliad ruins in, in Oblivion and and again with Dwemer in the um, Underdark or whatever the Underworld area, Blackreach, yeah, um, in Skyrim was. That's a good point. It's um it's very con- it's a series that is concerned with the past and what has led up to the moment that you're now facing. Um, I really like that about it. It's it's a game that you can live in in the moment that it's in, but you have this feeling of all of the past sort of weighing down on whatever's happening in the world at a given time. And the cool thing about it is it doesn't force that on you either. And and that's a lot of what you're going to see in this game in general. It's just there's a lot. I hate to even use this trope. There's a lot to unpack here, guys. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's a lot going on, and you don't have to interact with it at all. But if you so choose, there's just mountains of lore and, and information. And like Brian said earlier, it's conflicting information, too. They did this on purpose because they, they wanted the world to feel more real. And in our world, you could read the same historical event being told uh, you know, three different ways. Uh, and, and in the same way, you, you get it here in, in Morrowind and in Skyrim and Oblivion. Actually, I don't think I got that as much out of the later games. I think they put way more time into it and, and, and uh, care into it into Morrowind. I think this one had the most interesting main plot of any of the three that I've played. Yeah, I was listening to uh, just some videos about people talking about the differences between all three. And I think the thing that hit the most for me was they said, uh, obviously in every in every Elder Scrolls game, you're somebody important, right? You're the Dragonborn. Who are you in Oblivion? I, I forget. You're the hero of Kavach, and then eventually the champion of Cyrodiil. Right. And in this game, you're like the reincarnation of a uh, of, of a hero or demigod, I guess. And you're here to save everyone. But in the other games, people are immediately like praising you, like, oh my god, you're the hero, or you're the Dragonborn. And in this one... You need to prove it. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a, a couple people that are like, you might be the Nerevarain or, or whatever, but most of the people are like, nah, you're not him. Like, <laughs> they're mostly shitting on you the whole game, and you're like, no, wait, I really am, I think. The best part about this is when you uh, eventually, in the Cavern of the Incarnate, get to see all of the previous people that made a run at being the Nerevarain, the, um, the incarnate of the... Uh, Lord Nerevar, who you're talking about, Clint. And it's great because you get to see all of these, you know, heroes of the past who have gone down the same uh, pathway that you have and failed. You know, they may have gotten uh, further than you had at that given moment, or they may have uh, failed uh, way earlier. But they all have interesting stories if you listen to them, and it also gives a lot of credence to the the reasoning of why all of these leaders of Morrowind uh, basically treat you as some sort of charlatan right off the bat. Uh, which I love. You know, you have to really prove your mettle. 
One of the things that Clint mentioned earlier was about how all this stuff is here, but you don't have to interact with it. I think that's true for the lore, too, but I almost see that as like a guiding ph design philosophy of the game. Like, um, there's so much in this game, but the designers don't force you to do anything. Um, even the main quest, you can actually kill all the characters involved in the main quest and still complete the game through a little side back path they have um and it, other things too like compared to some of the later series i remember in oblivion these dungeons you would find would be right outside a city right along the roadside and here it felt like they were more tucked into corners and you'd have to go around looking for them and you'd find them you'd find some cool things but it wasn't so obviously presented to you there was no um no mini-map leading you to there. That, uh, when you get directions for navigating the city, they're like, turn left outside of my door and head south two blocks. And you're like, oh, great. <laughs> I have to go back and read this every time. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> now, some, in some ways, that's genius. And in other ways, 20 it's years on, place. it's obnoxious. <laughs> like, yeah, that exact thing happens like the, the first time you get anywhere. They're like, I don't know, go to the east side of the river, turn left. And if you get to the temple, you've gone too far. And I'm like, I'm like, I pull out my map six different times as I'm trying to do this. I'm like, fuck, I just trying to find this one building. <laughs> yeah, it, it is pretty funny. There's no quest markers in this game. You have to actually read. Uh, that is jarring in, in the year 2021. Uh, but man, it's jarring in such a good way. Like actually letting you be intentional about like thinking about where you need to go. I, I hear you that it can be annoying and, you know, there's give and take for that for sure. But I do love not having a bunch of horseshit all over my in-game map telling me that, oh, there's a little event you can do here. Here's where the next ride is. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, it's just, it helps with immersion. Well, as we talked about with uh, our discussion, Brian, on Ghost of Tsushima, there are ways to hit a middle road here where you're not mm -hmm. handing the player everything, but you at least edge them towards something that that, that might be important. Yeah, you're asking them to take like a semi-active hand in, in what they're trying to do next and not just leading them by the nose. And yeah, I, I think Morrowind was definitely leaning way further into the like old school tabletop version of like, I'm not going to tell you anything. If you want to find something, you're going to have to read context clues. You're going to have to read in between the lines sometimes. And uh, that's good. You know, by and large, I think they combat this by making the quests pretty simple. Um, but they mm -hmm. do require you to at least pay attention to what they're asking you to do. Yeah, you can't click next, 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 follow a marker, and then you're done. But yeah. <laughs> Josh, to your point, that that was pretty cool how, how you could literally kill anybody in this game. So in Skyrim or, or Oblivion, there'd be certain characters where if you were to attack them and best them, they would like get knocked out and they'd be like, sorry, they're crucial to the game. You can't, you, you can't get rid of these guys. And while that makes sense, it also breaks the immersion a little bit. You've been told you've been given a sandbox where you can do anything, and now there's things you can't do. Annoying. Uh, in Morrowind, you're right. They're like, yeah, you can do it. You will break the game, but you can do it. I do love that they let you break your safe. You know, they say, with this person's death, the threads of the prophecy have been severed. Um, you know, do you want to load or persist in the doomed world you've created? I love that. Like, I, I've almost memorized that word for word because, you know, I've seen it a few murder times. murder everyone. <laughs> <laughs> seen it a few times. But, um, no, it's, it's, such, it's so neat. They really do want to let you do anything. And if you want to fuck your game up and, you know, kill Vivek or whatever, so be it. Uh, they will let you do that.
I remember doing that too. That was like from my original game, like forever ago, back in college. Hate to say that's forever ago, but it is now. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was after beating the game. That was one of the things I wanted to go back and do. Was I? I had to go try to beat Vivek, and that was like the new final boss for me. I just going back to see if I could do it. Hmm. Right, and and all of this is to say that they really want to like traffic in immersion in this game. Right, they will let you do anything and try and find a way to justify it because they want to keep from breaking that immersion. And to that end, there's also no fast travel in this game. Right, you, you know, in all of the subsequent games, you can click on a map icon and get to where you need to be. In this, you're using public transit, baby. You got your silt striders, your mage <laughs> guilds, your boats. Uh, you know, navigating this game to me is a lot like navigating like a big city in Europe or on the coasts here in the States in that you got to use that public transit. <laughs> you you don't consider that fast travel though. I mean, it's less convenient fast travel, but still gets you, you know, you can get across the map fairly easily doing that. It's fast travel that makes you think, right? Like uh, it's much it's a step harder than pulling open your map and saying, I want to go to Vivek. You have to say, all right, I'm in the middle of the wilderness. How do I most quickly get to Vivek? Well, I can use Almsivi intervention, get back to Belmora, hop over the Silt Strider, catch that to Vivek, and I'm done. Hmm. Um, but, you know, that's like one more level of immersion than just saying, eh, open the map, click on Vivek, and there I am. See, the thing is, this came out in 2002 when MapQuest was just starting to be a thing. These days, kids all have their Google Maps that gives them the turn-by-turns. No, I definitely agree with that. And like I said, it, it's friction. But I think in, in this game's case, it's fun friction. Like, if the you know, getting to Vivek is an easy task. But if you have a quest that's telling you to go to, like, uh, the northwest corner of the island in the Grayslands, you are going to, like, take... Uh, a bunch of different steps to get there and then you'll walk a, a good way and find some cool stuff along the way. Yeah. And I actually, so when oblivion came out um, again, I think it was my second year of college when oblivion finally came out. But anyway, I'd just come off of Morrowind and I liked the, uh, the way you discovered stuff so much. So you kind of mentioned it earlier. You don't fast travel anywhere, which means you are walking everywhere, which means you find those little tucked away corners a- as you're traversing the world. You will by accident, find something and that tugs at a whole new storyline that, that you would have never seen otherwise. And I liked that so much that when oblivion came out, they introduced the fast travel and I refused to use it uh, because I, I still wanted that like environmental storytelling, find things as you go kind of thing. Now, granted if me now, if you told me that a game didn't have fast travel, I'll be like, F this, I can't do this. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't got that kind of time, baby. But you know, we're grown ass men here. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um, and I agree in most cases. But the fact that Morrowind is designed to not have it and, you know, makes it easy to use the transit systems that they've set up in place of fast travel, I think makes it work. And it still works to me just as well. Like I may be adding two minutes in either direction instead, you know, as an alternative to just clicking on the icon on the map. But that's kind of fun, right? Like that's a little puzzle to solve that I kind of enjoy. One thing I want to point out over here, at least something that I felt, was um, this game, when it came out in 2002, the technical limitations were greater on the game than, you know, when Oblivion or Skyrim came out. Uh, The world is, in a lot of ways, more sparse 
than those two other ones. Um, dungeons aren't as common. Uh, you can go for a longer time before you see something interesting or something the game designer put there for you. I kind of like the Morrowind style better. Like, um, it almost seemed like there was... It was too easy to stumble across things in Oblivion. Like, um, you, j you wander for five minutes and you find a cave and, oh, it's just like every other cave you've ever seen before. There's nothing... There's no real purpose for it except to have a little break for the player. But for Morrowind, I felt like the dungeons were much more intentional. There were more interesting things going on with them. And that you didn't run across them all the time meant that they meant more for you. I think it's almost a foregone conclusion that every dungeon or tomb or ruin that you end up in in Morrowind will have a thread back to one of the quests for one of the factions or one miscellaneous NPC somewhere. There's almost nothing that's just there on the map for its own sake. Everything is sort of interweaved in that way, even if it's small, as small as having like one of the threads of the web spinner, which are like these 27 different artifacts you need to find for the, the Morag Tong at some point. You know, every ruin, every tomb, every hut on the coast has a person, place, or thing you need to see for a quest somewhere in this game. Uh, it's very purpose-built because, to be honest, they didn't have the resources to just put stuff there for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this would have been original Xbox that this was on, correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yep, and then Oblivion was Xbox 360. I know because I got the Red Ring of Death twice while trying to play, <laughs> play that game. <laughs> that's so funny oblivion struck your xbox yeah <laughs> there was a i'm sure there were memes going around about how the oblivion gates were basically like a signal or a signal for the red ring of death to show up on your machine but <laughs> um you know early 2000s memes it's just the uh the ai got too powerful on those things i saw this mm -hmm. um procedurally generated ai thing that was pl uh, playing tetris and you know it's um it doesn't want to lose so what it did was right before it loosed it just paused the game and sat there forever and it's like <laughs> i'm doing great <laughs> Not dead yet. Longest game of Tetris ever. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I guess if you want to make uh, Morrowind the longest game ever, all you have to do is try and drain all of the quests out of every single faction in this game. Uh, hmm. To which there are many. Uh, this mm -hmm. is a game that has, I think, more factions than any Elder Scrolls game released to date. Uh, due to the fact that it contains, you know, Imperial factions, the guilds that you're familiar with, Fighters, Mage, and Thieves. The native factions, uh, the three Telvani or the three uh, Morrowind houses, great houses that roughly correspond to those three, the Morag Tong, which is your Dark Brotherhood, uh, and the Imperial Cult, the Tribunal Cult, the Blades, of course, your main quest. There's just a lot going on here. Many factions, they all have relationships with each other. Most of them are bad, and uh, <laughs> you know this is where most of your quests come from. In in my experience with the game, yeah, and like you talked about earlier about. You can choose not to do the main quest at all. You could just be like, I feel like going to, I feel like being a thief, so I'm going to do Thieves Guild stuff. And then you could just do that and skip everything else if you wanted to. Um, personally, that's how I've played most of the games since. Oddly enough, Morrowind, I actually, it's the only Elder Scrolls game I've ever beaten, actually. And I've put hundreds of hours into Skyrim and into Oblivion. Never beat main quest on either one of them, but this one had enough going on in the main story that I felt like it was worth it. You know, something I really liked about this game, as well, we're on the topic of stealing shit, is that um, it was this open 3D world where you could just wander into people's houses and take their shit. So you could send it, sell it off to your friendly Khajiit fence. Um, but 
unlike the later games, people did not follow you around in their houses. So you didn't really have to be a good thief. You just had to hide behind the corner for a moment. <laughs> they And nobody sees you, so you just wipe them clean out. I mean, it was kind of, um, you know, it wasn't a good, like, challenging thieving experience, but it was a really fun one. Yeah, I mean, one could say you're a reincarnated god. You're the best thief ever. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think that's probably more a limit of the AI in Morrowind. <laughs> I mean, that's how I played it. I basically stole everything all the time. It is pretty funny how easy it is to break this game over your knee mechanics-wise. Once you just get a ton of money, you know, you can train up whatever skills you're lacking in. That's how you level up your stats. It's sort of a vicious cycle. Once you have money, this game is pretty much over power curve-wise. So, so that's life. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Unlike life, which is so difficult once you have money. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> more money, more problems, right? <laughs> Despite the fact that this is the only game for which the main quest you've beaten, Clint, uh, of the Elder Scrolls, I find that really interesting because this is also a pretty onerous main quest like you know you're doing a lot of like fact finding at the start of it and then you're like proving to everyone that you're actually the prophecy fulfiller as you're being named Nerevarine and Hortator by seven different factions um it's a lot but actually it's a lot less onerous than it sounds it's still pretty rough though <laughs> well it kept me engaged because unlike these other games where they're pretty much telling you you're the hero from the start you're having to work for it here. Like there's all, it, it's like an upward battle. There's, there's a climb in the other games. I feel like you're just like, yeah, I'm awesome. So what? And then by the end you're like, okay, no, I'm really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, there's not much character development going on. And in this one, you felt like you had something to prove and you're constantly trying to, you don't even know if you are what they say you are, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. you're trying to, yeah, you're trying to prove it anyway. And I, I don't know that, that story, even 20 years later, I still remember that. That that, that was that like, got stuck in my head. Not a lot of games have that interesting of a storyline, so mm -hmm. I stuck around for that. It's worth mentioning that you feel pretty powerless when you start this game. Like it is a, a game that does not like onboard you easily. You know, your stats are low, you struggle to hit enemies, and it's worth mentioning that <laughs> this is a game that has uh, the ability to miss uh, when you swing a sword and it goes right through your enemy. And you do so frequently at the you early You do so levels. very frequently. Yes. Yeah. You know, they, they, they change this in the later entries of the series, but there's a hidden dice roll every time you swing your sword uh, or spear or axe or whatever. And there are so many things that determine whether or not you even hit an enemy. Your skill, the governing attribute of that skill, how long you held the button, how much fatigue you have, the enemy's agility, the enemy's armor. It's just, ugh. Like, There's a lot. I can <laughs> it's a lot. And I can understand, like, when you start this game and you're struggling with your chitin dagger to even hit a mud crab outside the first town, that you could just be like, fuck this, I'm done. <laughs> yep. I remember one of the first quests I did this time around. Uh, it's like, oh, the first quest the Fighter's Guild gives you. I've got some fighter skills here. I'm going to go take care of, let's see, a couple of egg poachers. Sure, those sound like they're little nobodies. And I think it took me about 30 minutes of constant reloads and finding the right potions combinations and just going through it a couple times until the random number generator blessed me with good rolls until I was able to take out these couple of scrubs hiding out in an egg mine. 
<laughs> yep, it, it's true. And, you know, funnily enough, we were just talking about how easy it is to completely break this game and make combat, uh, along with most other things, completely trivial. Oh, sure. It happens as you level up. You get much more powerful very quickly. Um, the lead designer, Ken Rolston, actually talked about this a little bit. He said that they had to make combat over the course of the entire game a lot easier because they didn't have the resources to test the entire thing and make it balanced throughout. So they erred on the side of caution and made the made it easy to get overpowered. Hmm. That's interesting, because you definitely do get overpowered, um, you know, if you're continuing on the course of this game. And I think that probably has to do with how character development actually works in this game. It's basically a direct, you know, exponential increase line based on time, right? You have uh, stats that you determine at the beginning of the game. They govern skills, which are chosen by your class. And if you level up major or minor skills, again, dictated by your class, you gain a point out of 10 to level up. Um, so every time you're using your major skills, be that like short swords, long swords, bows, alchemy, magic, whatever, you are, uh, starting your process of leveling up and you do those things quite a bit. And so as a result, you gain levels pretty quick. Now, I think one of the reasons why it becomes very easy to break this game is the way that they do stat increases in this game. Now, let's say you, um... You level up, uh, like, uh, sword swinging is one of your major skills. That's a strength attribute one. Uh, So if you have enough of these strength skills leveled up between um, you being level 3 and you being level 4, your strength attribute can go up a lot more on level up. Like, if you only have a couple of these strength things up there, then you could get an increase of 2 or 3. If you have uh, a whole bunch, then you can get a uh, plus 5 increase to strength. Now, all of us going through this again we know this so of course we level up super quickly at the beginning but i think somebody who was playing this game more normally with and having to figure that out on their own they would uh, be a lot slower on that power curve yeah you're probably a lot more balanced in this game if you play it going in blind but as you said with the prior knowledge we are able to level we are as gods in this game. <laughs> basically, basically yes, because we can level efficiently, right? If you're about to level up and you realize you're not going to get a times five for one of the skills that you want to you know, level up in, you go buy some training real quick. On something unrelated like your armorer skill, repairing weapons. Right. So all of a sudden, you're able to efficiently level. You're able to increase you know, three attributes by five points each every time you level up. And, you know, it's way easier knowing the skills of this game to have a godlike level 20 character that could beat a level 50 character that didn't know these types of things going into the game. So it, it's, it really is a game that rewards knowing how to play it in terms of the, the mechanical aspects, which is completely unnecessary because this is not a hard game to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from developing your character from, you know, a pure stats and skills perspective, you do get sort of fun weapons, armor, artifacts. Um, it's it's fun to go sort of dungeon delving in this game, and a lot of the loot is just leveled on random enemies, but some of it is static. 
And I think that's one of the things I like most about this game is the static enemies and loot that are there from the beginning of the game that you can go and find regardless of you know how powerful you are or what level you are. I think it's worth mentioning that Oblivion, the next game in this series, was famous or infamous, depending on which side of the uh, conversation you fall on, but for their enemies, which would level up with you as you went through the game. Um, So, you know, you go into a troll cave at level 1 or at level 30, and you're still going to have a troll who's leveled up to be about this, you know, be a challenge for you. Uh, Morrowind did not have this with you. There'd be maybe a small range that enemies could be with, but in general, like, the cave of uh, the cave of danger and peril is going to have, like, the heavy hitters in there, and you can go in there level 5 and just get wiped out and be like, oh, I gotta come back here later on to get this sweet loot. Yeah, it made the world feel more believable, too. So, again, you're being told that there's all these horrible things out beyond this wall and that, you know, basically everything is horrible and can kill you. When you have a game that levels up with you, you never really feel that much in danger. But you're right. In in Morrowind, you could wander into an area and just be like, holy shit, I do not belong here. And while it's not super quality of life, it is... It's world building and it's important to the story. And and I feel like that was a a better way to handle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agree. Definitely improves immersion. The first Daedric shrine you wander into is uh, likely to be this in Morrowind. You know, you learn to avoid those places. (laughs) Unless you're, you know, level 15 packing some heat equipment wise, you're going to get your ass handed to you. Yeah. So this game has a lot of different factions that you do a lot of different quests for. As Brian said, the quests aren't particularly involved. A lot of fetch quests, a lot of go see this person, find out what this person wants. There's some fun things like when you gotta figure out what a, you know, there's that gift giving quest you have to do where you have to figure out what a guy likes in order to get him to get some vital information. But one of the things I think uh, that this game shows its age in is that the delivery of these quests is a little stilted. Like, you walk into a building, you sit there, and somebody sits there and talks at you, um, and then you find out what you gotta do from that. But there's not a lot of dynamism there, or there's, there's not a lot of action there in how you learn about the quest or what you do. Um, it's mostly just talking heads while you figure out what's going on. And it's not subtle, either. I remember... <laughs> quote unquote joining the thieves guild in this game and that's something in, in the other games <laughs> that they're like cat and mouse about cat and mouse get it Kajit uh. <laughs> anyway uh, like they like you have to work your way into it like they don't trust you like maybe the thieves guild, actually in one of them they pretend like the thieves guild doesn't exist for the longest yeah, like what are you talking about <laughs> yeah but in this one you just go talk to some Kajit in the bar he's like hey you want to join the thieves guild cool you are now in the thieves guild <laughs> <laughs> like what okay here's a secret handshake don't yeah, turn g- us in go steal some diamonds and shit see you in a minute and you're like what you say you're also part of the imperial legion eh, doesn't seem problematic to me <laughs> yeah I don't, <laughs> I don't see a problem here anyway anyhow yeah so it's you're right it's it's not exactly subtle and it's not exactly involved but and again, I think that was a limitation of the technology they had at the time they found better ways to do that since then but you know, there's a lot of things about this game that have aged very well. I think this is one part that hasn't. 
I, I would agree. It's also really striking to me how not sort of self-contained and engaging as individual things the quests are, right? I think the quests in this game are interesting in that they sort of paint a really broad picture of the things going on in Vardenfell at the time you're there. But what you're doing moment to moment and what you're doing in any given quest is, like you said, not particularly interesting. Go here, talk to this guy, do this thing. Rob this tomb. Yeah, but taken in aggregate, if it weren't just the Nerevarine going around and making shit happen all over Vardenfell, what the picture they're painting and how these factions are interacting with each other and trying to make power grabs and, you know, backstabbing each other constantly is super interesting. So that read on it to me is still super fresh and super interesting. But the way it's presented is, like you said, a bit outdated. Yeah, the broad strokes of what's happening in the world is cool. The little tiny brush strokes that you're making as your individual person, not as fun or interesting. Yeah, it's like uh, gaming pointillism. Uh, you know, each individual dot is not impressive, but the painting as a whole is. Yeah. Hmm. Well, speaking of things that aren't very impressive on their own, <laughs> <laughs> this game, I think it follows the kind of general Elder Scrolls theme of the combat not being super involved or having a lot of interesting choices with it. Uh, You know, just go up, swing a sword. There's not even a stealth archer in this one to introduce (laughs) that little bit of tactics to it. Yeah. I still played as a stealth archer. I don't care what you say. You have to. (laughs) But but, um, no, you're right. It's not particularly tactical. It's not particularly like... Um, mechanically sound like we said this is really the old school sort of dice roll in the background thing is frustrating and this was solved with later entries but i don't think the elder scrolls have ever really nailed combat Um, there are other games that just do this much better and to some end like the rpg mechanics are like window dressing for the main course which is the world morrowind is the swinging hardest in the one direction on this but the other games have, you know, kind of to lesser degrees middled out this dynamic, you know, the yeah. combat still sucks. <laughs> Compare your modern open worlds of Skyrim to Breath of the Wild and just how much more interesting the combat is in Breath of the Wild. Yeah, I mean, those two are not even really contemporaries, though. One's six years later than the other. But I hear what you're saying. I think the hard part here is that they're mixing RPG elements that have things like dice rolls in them with uh, an action. This is almost an action game, which is skill-based play. So players are very likely to get frustrated when they're like, I know my crosshairs was on that enemy. I should have hit that enemy. <laughs> so you really have to find a way to like marry those two things together. And it's difficult, and you're never going to be great at both. So I think that's why you see that that middle ground on things on, on all those others. Now, granted, you got things like Breath of the Wild that has no RPG element, not really any anyway. Yeah, you, you kind of move away from that, and it's more of an action adventure game, and and it's all skill based, right? So if yeah. if you're aiming there, you'll hit them. So I think they were trying to ride the line in Morrowind, and then failed to be impressive in, in either uh, category, and that's what made this really hard for me to go back and play. And for anyone that's going to try to go back and play Morrowind now, because like, oh, I love Skyrim, I love Oblivion, I should go back and play Morrowind, you're going to have a hard time. Like, (laughs) it's hard to get over the fact that you can just swing your dagger at that mud crab a hundred times and you're going to miss because you don't have the right skill. Just those wishes sound effects playing over and over again. Not again. (laughs) 
You're mine. Your cursed bloodline ends here. You're hardly a match for me. It's interesting how the combat skills in this game are basically just ways to mitigate bad dice rolls. And the other, you know, a lot of the skills in this game are just ways to mitigate bad dice rolls now that I think about it. Um, but some of those are more uh, satisfying than others, right? Like swinging and missing with a sword is way less fun than you know, trying to bribe someone. And sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. Stealing, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. And to that end, like sneaking, bartering, and mercantile are, to me, some of the most overpowered things in the game because they're what are going to really let you, like, break things, climb the power curve. That is the hot take from Brian. Mercantile. Get that that money. (laughs) It it is. It really is. You know, you if you if you get enough money, this game is over. You can bribe anyone to agree with you for anything. You can train any skill you want up to any level. Like this game is over once you have your first like twenty k. Brian just figured out how life works. I like this is gonna change his world. I mean, uh, yeah, fair enough. I think Clint made a good point earlier about, you know, those other games are skill-based, the action games. Morrowind is not an action game like those are. They weren't trying to be that. They were trying to make an RPG in a 3D world, and this was just the best way they could come up with, like, a, this is how we're going to swing our sword over here. Yeah, a swing and a miss is way more, uh, I guess, acceptable in a game like Baldur's Gate, where when you... You just click on a character and you're like, okay, my guy's going to swing now. Does he hit? Does he not? Because you are not in that character's space, I guess. You're not directly controlling the character. You're telling him to go do something and then you see what happens. In this kind of thing, where a third-person action game or a first-person action game, you're in direct control, so you feel like your input should matter. Your aim, your whatever, but again, it's not. It's hidden dice rolls in the background, and that's what I think is frustrating. You know, I wonder if that perspective thing has to do with it. Like, you play first-person shooters, you get trained to think, like, my crosshairs are lined up here. Um, I wonder if this was, like, an isometric game, if that would have been, if we would have had the same idea there, that this should be a hit here. Sure, like, but you're basically saying, like, Morrowind as Baldur's Gate would would feel a lot different. And yes, I agree it would. (laughs) But um, one thing, there's probably a mod out there for that. But um, mm-hmm. one thing I want to just make sure we don't gloss over is that this doesn't necessarily limit player expression. Like, for all the talk of, like, limiting, you know, bad dice rolls and things like that, you can still do a lot of different stuff in this game that still really, to me, hasn't been, you know, surpassed in certain respects by other games. You can levitate. Uh, I haven't seen a mechanic mm-hmm. like that in almost any game. Um that's a really cool thing, and it, it provides you a lot of interesting tactical options, uh, like hovering above people and shooting them with arrows. <laughs> you go badly, too. You can le- levitate too high and then fall and then just die. Yeah. I mean, the alchemy system is still as good as it is in this game as it ever was, which is to say, not great, but still interesting. Um, the spellcrafting in this game, I think, is actually more interesting than any other iteration of it in an Elder Scrolls game, at least. I agree with um, that. The spellcrafting and the enchanting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can really do some breaking, breaking the game style shit with that 
system in this game, and it's mm -hmm. fun. You know, this game really doesn't care if you break it over your knee, and I like that about it. There's also, like, a random system for reputation. You know, every time you do a big quest, you get a reputation increase, and all of a sudden everyone likes you a little more. Um, weirdly, how much people like you, the disposition attached to literally every NPC in this game, is a big deal. That'll help you a lot with quests, that'll help you with how often guards will attack you, that'll help how often other factions will attack you sometimes. Um, and it is, it's really, like a small number that you don't even notice most of the time when you're playing that makes a big difference. I think it's a fairly opaque system there. Like they never, there's never anything to explain to you how reputation works or that it's something that can be so helpful. Yeah, I agree. There's lots of things like that. Like crime is not really explained very well in this game either, but you always have a bounty um, and usually it's zero if it's, unless it's not. And the ways to mitigate that, you know, are super interesting too. You can go and talk to a, a clerk that will, you know, erase your bounty for half the price of it. The disease system in this game is also interesting until, of course, you're immune to it because you got Corpus had it cured and now you're the Nerevarine. Mm -hmm. um, but there's all kinds of little systems like this that will sort of color your trip through these otherwise, as we said, bland quests. And I think it's just like the interaction of those systems with these really simple, you know, cross the map, talk to the sky that make the stories that come out of Morrowind interesting. That, and of course, all of the reasoning behind what is actually going on on the page. Like Brian was saying earlier, the um, spell making system in this game was very interesting. I, one of the things I remember doing was to make an amulet of 100% magic resistance, or like 80% or something close to that. And then there's this artifact you find along the way doing random quests called the Boots of Blinding Speed. And you go so much faster wearing these things, but you're blind. Ha, it's hilarious. A joke the developers put in, except if you have that amulet on, you can still mostly see well enough to get around, and it makes... I mean, you say there's no fast travel in this game. Well, there's this one. <laughs> um, I actually had a, a, an even better solution to this, Josh. You create a spell that is 100% magic resistance for one second, and you call it Bootstrapper. And you cast <laughs> that, put on the boots, and you're good to go. That's all you need. <laughs> but the, the thing is, this game has a lot of systems that are a lot of fun to break. You know, this this game wasn't necessarily intended to be balanced the entire way through, and the systems are fun to mess around with. Uh, it gives you this kind of godlike power over the game, which I think leads us into our next segment of the podcast, talking about the lore, talking about mm. Chim. Yeah, so this game is sort of overridden by this idea of... Um, <laughs> well, I guess maybe it's simpler to just take a step back and say that the world of the Elder Scrolls is based on the idea that there is a god that is having a dream, and in that dream is all of the Elder Scrolls. And if you are a person who realizes that they are living in this dream, you can access or you have achieved Chim, which is what Josh mentioned there. And basically, that affords you the powers of like those of a god. And in the world of Morrowind, one person is known to have achieved this, and that is Vivek, who is the living god that you will encounter in your quest. Now, the, the thing about Chim here is that the a lot of these powers that it's referenced that Vivek has are um, 
very similar to the powers the player has. You know, you're able to um, reload, quick save, jump back and forth between different timelines, impose your will on it. Um, he's able to reshape the land, much like you might do if you open up the Elder Scrolls construction set and start <laughs> modding. Uh, so there's one interpretation of the game that has this Chim as being like Vivek realizing he's in a video game. And because he realizes that, he has these godlike powers within the game, much like you yourself do as the player. So you're Nero from the Matrix, basically. You've you've unplugged and now you can do whatever you want. I will do a quick correction, too, that there were two NPCs that achieved um, Chim. The other one was uh, Tiber Septim. And uh, the reason they... Uh, one of the things they did with that was they had it... Um, fix some continuity errors because in oblivion you know you're in a kind of a grasslands foresty nice fertile looking place but according to some of the earlier lore about Cyrogil before it, they actually went and developed it in books it was this hugely hostile jungle so Tiber Sumptum gets some chim on and he's like eh, you know my people don't really like this jungle let's make it some fertile grasslands instead and boom there it was <laughs> Yeah, let's make it Tuscany. Um, <laughs> and all this is to say is that those conclusions that we have just laid out for you, dear listener, are basically the culmination of a game that has over 300 books, not counting spell scrolls in it. And they just do an intense amount of world building, everything from historical and lore events, collections of sermons, guidebooks to different types of land. It's all here. Uh, and the game does an interesting thing with these historical and lore events. It, you know, like we said, it allows you to interpret them in different ways, and it allows you to take them in the context of this overarching, you know, godhead dreamer uh, mythos, which uh, allows for sort of a fourth wall breaking dimension to come into the entire picture. Basically, <laughs> basically canonizing the player using the console commands or the <laughs> Elder Scrolls construction set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a cool thing they do. And it lets them, you know, any continuity errors which you have when you have 300, 400 books over five games, you're going to have a couple of continuity errors. But it leans into it. Like you guys were talking about before, you have books that contradict each other. Uh, you have history that contradicts each other. Like um, in this game, the main Dunmer religion, the Dark Elf religion, is the tribunal. I'm sorry, the tribunal, who is Vivek which we've talked about before, and two other gods, uh, Sothasil and Almexia. Almalexia, Alma yeah. yeah. Um, so the original story is that, um, you know, spoilers here for an almost 20-year-old game, but uh, <laughs> Lord Ner Nerevar was general of the Dark Elf forces. They were going to war against the dwarfs because the dwarfs had, like, found this heart of a god and they were using it to i don't know gain magic powers or try to do shit and the the dark elves were being very religious they wanted no part of that so nerevar and his three counselors who are now the tribunal um they go and confront the dwarfs leave the tools behind in care of dagoth ur who is now the big bad who is coming back to take over everything um and Nerevar goes back to talk with his counselors to say, figure out what should be happening. They murder him. and Or then they, do they? <laughs> you know, we could talk about it, but I think that's where the evidence points to. Uh, but then they go beat Dagath, or take the 
these tools and they become gods themselves, getting to this chim state and being able to literally rewrite history as they wanted to. And But you get a lot of conflicting accounts about this, like, did ne was Nerevarn murdered by Dagoth Ur? Was he betrayed by him? Was he betrayed by the tribunal? What's all going on here? And some of the inciting events of this game is basically the power, the, you know, the Chim level power that these three gods in the tribunal have attained is starting to wane. And as a result, uh, you, the player, are now the, the you know, the holder of that level of power. The, the chimiest. Saving, <laughs> yeah, the, the chimiest Chim Chim of all. Uh, <laughs> chim Chimmery, Chim Chimmery, Chim 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 uh, <laughs> But yeah, so you, you know, you're the one saving and reloading games and making, you know, bending the rules of the game to your whims. And uh, Vivek sort of acknowledges that in you know, the sermons that he wrote foreseeing the future and the the arrival of you as the player. It's uh, deep and meta. Meta as hell, in fact. And hmm. something that, like, if this head game had come out uh, less than a year ago, none of this would even be known or cared or talked about. But since we've had going on 20 years of people talking and thinking about this game, there's a vast repository of people, like, on forums and in websites sort of dissecting and redissecting all of the different lore in this game and it's it's interesting stuff it's heady stuff and sometimes it's way up your own ass stuff but you know at the end of the day it's fun to hear one of the things i heard about with these conflicting senses of history is that on the development team in bethesda uh, different designers and programmers would have different opinions about what really happened. So instead of unifying that into a single source of truth, they're just like, yes. <laughs> yes to everything. <laughs> and I think it worked great. It did. And, you know, it, it's an intensely sort of creative process that almost definitely would have been stamped out of existence in any modern video game development context. And I appreciate that about this. Like, it's something that only could have existed in, like, the very specific place and time that it existed in, um, at least for ostensibly a AAA studio. So that, that to me is sort of the, like, the thing about this game that is going to stand the test of time is just how interesting the conditions that allowed it to exist were. <laughs> But to that end, you know, the, even though this game is is as old as it is and, uh, you know, going on 20 years old, it is still a very vibrant uh, and contributed to game. There's a very vibrant modding scene. It's still huge. It's still pretty great. Given that the Elder Scrolls construction set was packed in with the game, they basically open source the whole engine. And honestly, who does that? Who would ever do that today? Now, that construction set was how the game developers made Morrowind like that is the tools mm-hmm yeah it, it's it's fascinating to me that they just like packed that in with the game and as a result we have like the most heavily modded game ever and you know I, I don't know how many mods you played this game with or you guys played this game with this time around but I liberally used mods to sort of improve my quality of life as I played this game 
Um, I had a faster running mod until I got those boots of blinding speed. I had a encumbrance multiplier. I had a graphics extender that made this game look almost as good as, you know, today's games, a UI fix, enhanced textures, magic or regeneration. I, you know, code patch to fix a bunch of bugs. It's just, there's a bunch of stuff that people have modded in this game to sort of make it into its, you know, prime form. It's a letter of love. Yeah, it really is. I ended up playing this this time almost back to vanilla. So I, I did the graphics extender just to, to well, I, I couldn't even use the full resolution of my monitor without it. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had to do that. But I tried to play it as vanilla as possible because I wanted to get that old school feeling. But I think I would have had a better experience because I think the biggest problem I had was some of that quality of life stuff. 20 years does a lot for quality of life. And uh, it showed it showed its age for sure. I just used a couple of graphical mods as well. Uh, one interesting thing I think when we're talking about the modding scene is, uh, in, a, in a way, the lore was kind of modded as well. Um, in that, when this game first came out, uh, when Bethesda was a younger studio, a lot of the designers and developers would be on the game forums interacting with the fans. And there's been a number of things that fans have suggested that have since become canon and written into the series. So a lot of, I, I think someone, one of the people on this working on this game said that because of that strong forum activity and community interaction, that's the reason they released the construction set for everyone. Hmm. I love it. And I'm glad they did that. You know, this game had a couple expansions that came out after, um, you know, the Tribunal, which explores that, tr you know, triumvirate of gods you talked about, Blood Moon, which added a landmass. But I think the most interesting come out post-release for Morrowind has come from the community. And that's definitely a product of that decision. So I'm glad it was made. And it's stuck with everything Bethesda's done ever since. Now, you might not have as, as in-depth tools, but like all their games have been heavily modded ever since fall all the fallouts all the elder scrolls they all have more mods than any other game i can think of honestly yeah it's an it's entire facet of their company at this point is you know when a bethesda game comes out that it's going to have mod support and that's going to be like a really cool reason to pick it up and play it because it's not just going to be what you're buying on the box it's going to be everything that comes along with the community that embraces it which is why it just blows my mind that Josh, you brought up earlier that the Xbox port outsold the PC version because I, I don't believe there's any way to do any kind of mod when you're, <laughs> when you're playing on console. But nope. I mean, PC is where these games shine because it's not just it's not just the base game anymore. It's the base game plus 20 years of what this massive uh, cult following has has helped develop around it, which is probably the coolest part of the whole game, honestly. So the later Elder Scrolls entries on consoles did have like a rudimentary mod library that they allowed to be uploaded and used with the console versions of the games. I think this to me is like a little bit of a neutered version of what is available on PC. <laughs> um, I mean, you're not going to get like the Castlevania mod that puts a castle off the coast of Morrowind that you can explore in <laughs> in that. <laughs> um, and actually, to my knowledge, that actually doesn't exist in... Uh, common modding circles even on uh on the current internet you have to go dig digging deep for that one well i think part of that too is kind of the the promise of the modding on the pc is that you know you can consume other people's mods but you also have that option to go in and tweak stuff yourself Mm-hmm. yep and to my 
most recent playthrough, the most sort of far-reaching and expansive mod I used was Tamriel Reborn, which actually tries to build in all of the other landmass of Morrowind around Vardenfell into the game again. Um, and I found it interesting. It was a little like fragile for me, as in it crashed a bit. But um, the landmass has a ton of care put into it. Not a ton of content yet, but still very cool that there's people, you know, extrapolating off of all of the information and the text for the Elder Scrolls and trying to basically build out all of the the content that could have been if this game had another 15 years in development. <laughs> which it kind of has. Yeah, which it kind of has. Um, and now that we've taken 15 years to develop our thoughts around uh, the Elder Scrolls 3 Morrowind, let's try and sum all that shit up in a three-word review. My three-word review for this game is Wander and Find. Uh, now, this comes from a quote from one of the writers and quest designers of Morrowind, Mark Nelson. He's talking about how he's proud of Morrowind, but it doesn't have the same modern affordances that the later games have. Fast travel, quest markers. You know, he was a purist about this sort of thing. Um, he's glad they're in the later games because he's older now. You know, I, I feel that too. But he doesn't have as much time to, quote, just wander and find things. That was a lot of the beauty of Morrowind. You could just wander and come across these random little things. Uh, and to me, that is the beauty of Morrowind. Just that sense of adventure heading out on the island and wandering across until you find something cool and investigating it, seeing what's going on. Uh, to me, that's a lot of parts of this game haven't aged as well as they might have, uh, but the, it's still worth playing for that sense of exploration it affords you. My three-word review is kind of hard to come up with because I, it just depended on the context. Are we talking now or are we talking then? And I, I think looking at it now, my three-word review is fundamental, not fun. Uh, and the, <laughs> the only reason I say that is because this game laid cornerstones for just everything we have today like the most amazing games basically of course the fallouts and the elder scrolls the but games like witcher and mass effect and all those games too like everything that came behind it was so much better because it was such an awesome cornerstone and it still out outdoes some of those games in some of those ways we talked about earlier like the lore and the environmental storytelling it was way ahead of its time but if you go back to play it now because of all the great things that came from it its age really starts to show, especially in things like the combat and some of the other things. And I had a really hard time going back and, and enjoying it th this time through. But that being said, I have some of the fondest memories from playing this back in college that there's very few games from that long ago that, that I remember to this depth, which I think speaks to how impactful it was, not only on the industry, but, but on me personally. So I love this game. If you are looking to get into a new RPG today, I don't know that this is the one I would point to, but <laughs> excellent game. My three-word review is A Forgotten Prophecy. Back when I first played Morrowind, I could see a whole future of games with Morrowind's level of immersion, world-building, waiting for me in the future. A prophecy of a bright future for the types of RPGs I loved most. Making a game like Morrowind requires intense creativity and freedom, especially in terms of concept and writing. And in some ways, that's anathema to modern AAA design. It's too unpredictable, too uncertain. 
The promise of Morrowind was a future of gaming where many AAA RPG worlds were deep, well-realized, and immersive, where politics, religion, economics, and culture were all an important part of what drove the action. But that prophecy never came true. The largest studios have continued to prioritize ways to reduce risk over creative vision, and the prophecy remained unfulfilled. It's rare for me to find a game, even today, that drives the level of immersion I feel playing Morrowind, and subsequent Elder Scrolls games seem to have forgotten what made Morrowind special from a world-building perspective. Certainly they do some things much better than Morrowind did. Still, I'm glad I can go back and play Morrowind, and in some ways, thanks to mods, it gets better every time. But I'd really love for someone to remember the forgotten prophecy of what was promised by Morrowind, and let that come into existence. And from us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care, and keep on gaming. Yeah, I I didn't know how to contextualize my three word review. I was having the hardest time with this one because, like, I lo- I love Morrowind, but yeah, I had a really I, hard I, time playing it this time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm not surprised by that. There are certainly like rough edges that have been sanded off. I think, to me, like the only game that even comes close to like hitting the triumvirate of like mechanical world building and you know artistic mastery is The Witcher Three. Um, that that to me is and it's drawing from like such a rich tapestry of you know creative works itself that you know it makes sense that that is the game that would like to me come closest I guess but all, all that is to say play Witcher three <laughs> yeah I I really should have modded and and gotten some of those quality of life things I think that would have helped a ton for for me the biggest the biggest problem was combat and we've talked about this before uh God I think you said it but basically. Combat is the way that you interact with the world, mm, for the most part, in most games. Yeah, it's it's like and and that interaction felt lacking in this game only only because it changed so much. There's a quote um, by Ken Rolstein, the lead designer, um, that basically he says, "Oblivion is better software. The problem with Morrowind is, as a game, it's totally broken. And when I say as a game, I mean that if RPGs have four pillars, they have narrative, exploration, achievement, and combat." combat and achievement are broken in Morrowind. So, I I think that's basically where we landed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the story, though, is, is amazing. And I, I, like we're talking about, I still remember that to this day, and I was excited to get back into it, and I think I don't know. Maybe I'll have to try again. Maybe I'll mod it out and, and, and try back again from the beginning. I don't think there's, like, a combat mod for Morrowind that all of a sudden makes it, like, the perfect game. And to be honest, if there was, I wouldn't use it. Because I think that weird like dice rolly combat is part of the game for better or for worse, and I don't know. I, I'm I'm not interested in fixing that aspect of the game because that's not what I go to it for, right? Like if I went to Morrowind, um, I'm going there to sort of like take you know draw a nice warm bath of politics, culture, religious, uh, and levitating stealth archers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. mixed with some game breaking ridiculousness. <laughs> yeah.